0: Greetings, and welcome to Broken Boxes podcast. I'm very excited to share this episode, which marks nine years of this independently produced archival broadcasting project. One of my dear friends who I work with in the arts, Amaryllis de Jesus Molesky, proposed that she interview me for this anniversary episode to give listeners a deeper look into the intentions of this work, my journey as an artist, and my own reflections on the very ideas I often draw out from those who participate in this project. This is the first time I've sat on the other side of the dialogue, and it was quite vulnerable, but Amaryllis really did an incredible job at leading the conversation, and I hope we can have the opportunity to present more conversations between us in the future. As part of the celebration of this work's nine-year trajectory, another dear friend, India Sky, composed new music for the podcast, which is playing now behind me talking. Gratitude to you, India, for this beautiful contribution to the project to carry us into the next year. And gratitude to you, Amaryllis, for making space for me to share a bit more about my work. Following this conversation is an excerpt from a DJ mix I created for a recent tour. To start us out, I want to share a bit on the philosophy of my own practice. I strive in all I do to build a living archive in celebration of our interconnection as complex and vibrant humans, working together to witness each other heal and thrive as we activate the art world. I am inspired to create work and amplify artist stories which center intersection and complexity within the human experience. Throughout my own practice, I am committed to sharing and learning with my peers how our stories intersect how we can maintain solidarity for one another, and how we can practice tangible acts of care and respect while acknowledging there are many expansive community values existing in tandem. Echoing these notions of care, recurring host, Chanupahanska will now read the Broken Boxes podcast intention setting and share brief bios regarding myself and Amaryllis to introduce our conversation
1: launched in 2014 by artist ginger Donnell broken boxes was created to transmit ideas between working artists the project shares the lived experiences and world-building strategies of contemporary artists in order to archive collective strength while considering how art and imagining may unbind us from collective social trauma this long-form interview podcast reflects the vulnerability and strength of the artist while acknowledging the many variations of an artist's practiced values including those of activist, advocate, disruptor, or culture activator. Broken Boxes maintains that complexity is resilience. By actively practicing long-term alliance through communication strategies, this work amplifies artists at the forefront of global and regional impacts who are creating new ways to see our existence through art, organizing, and advocacy. This project promotes deeper understanding, healing, and solidarity as we move collectively towards witnessing each other and the world in new ways. Broken Box's creator and artist, Ginger Donnell, centers human complexity and intersection through sound composition, performance, broadcasting, and advocacy-driven communication efforts in order to create a living archive of solidarity. For over two decades, she has produced experiential artwork and organized numerous exhibitions and social engagement projects globally, activating transformative justice practices through long-term acts of respect, relationship building, and accountability in the arts. As a practicing artist, Ginger has exhibited internationally at institutions such as the Whitney Museum of American Art, Smack Mellon. Washington Project for the Arts, and Io Deposito in Italy, among others. She is currently touring as a DJ and continues to produce large-scale projects in collaboration with other artists. Ginger is interviewed by Amaryllis de Jesus Molesky. Amaryllis is a queer Puerto Rican-American artist living and working in Brooklyn, New York, raised between multiple cities and rural communities across America in a constantly shifting landscape. Her practice explores themes of hybridity, mythology, and sexuality, utilizing drawings, video, sculpture, performance, and installation. Her work is a visual language paying attention to the spaces in between categories and revering those who know the trouble and the pleasure there. Amaryllis has exhibited both nationally and internationally and earned an MFA from the Yale School of Arts, a BFA from California College of Arts and Craft, and is a Joan Mitchell Fellow and Creative Capital Awardee
2: makes it feel like one of our conversations that we have every week you know yeah totally and I have new glasses yeah so pretty (laughs) fresh a fresh face for a fresh day (laughs) (laughs) so I want to do like a formal introduction in a moment but I thought it might be cool to just check in kind of what we were talking about before how are you feeling I'm feeling good
0: I must admit I'm feeling a bit vulnerable about being interviewed because I always position myself in the background in like when you're a DJ you know you people might think DJs are super social but like you're like behind like a literal table like you have separation mm-hmm. from audience you know broadcasting is very protected because you don't have a face you're just a voice and you can like transmit complicated ideas and even working in theater and all the things that I've done throughout my life, they're always like really group oriented and like working as one of a team to get something done. And so I generally shy away from (laughs) uh, being interviewed or like having the focus or spotlight be put on me because... I don't know, it gives me a little bit of anxiety, makes me feel vulnerable, but I think I'm at the point in my life where I'm ready to crack open a little bit, and you're a wonderful person to do that with. Well,
2: I'm so excited and so honored. I think it makes so much sense that you would be feeling uh, vulnerable, you know, and uh, nervous. I notice nerves as well, just because these are conversations that we have as friends and as community all the time, but they're private, you know? So like to open our conversation up and to open the space up and a personal conversation and, you know, tender opinions and curiosity to just like an offering for anyone who would like to listen and be a part of this conversation. It is vulnerable. So I feel super grateful and honored that nine years into this project, (laughs) you um, would allow me the the privilege to interview you. So I want to start off by saying, welcome to Broken Boxes podcast, Ginger. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Amarillo. (laughs) This is the show that you created, that you produce. And that you host. So I'm your host today, Amaryllis. <laughs> Yay. And we mentioned it um, just a second ago, but I really want to highlight February 2023, the very, very monumental month in that this is the nine year anniversary of Broken Boxes podcast. A labor of love uh, from you to us, your community, the podcast where you've been for nine years archiving collective intelligence and wisdom, uh, collective vulnerability, intimate conversations between artists to talk about different ideas and lived experiences and learned experiences. So if you're new to the party for anyone who's listening right now, welcome. It's an amazing party I think about your work. We're going to get into it in a in a minute as an artist and a DJ and what you're just talking about of like really being a conductor, creating and holding a space for people to to dance and live and Uh, live it up be free for a moment and that's really similar to the role that you play on this podcast and what you've created as a really beautiful conductor and orchestration of these conversations so if you if you're just listening now for the first time there's nine years a nine-year archive these conversations are really incredible valuable. I don't think I've ever um, heard anything like it. You were doing this podcast way before podcasts blew up. Um, And so it's just so precious. You know, a lot of times as artists, we don't get to necessarily have these conversations. So very, very special. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start off the same way that you start off, just by asking you, if you would introduce yourself in the way that you would like to be introduced. Mm. Wow.
0: Thank you, Amaryllis, for saying such kind things. I'm already tearing up. (laughs) 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 Oh, it's, it's, it feels so good to like take your praise, you know, and just like hold it. And so I really appreciate that, um, that way of, Reflecting my work and my practice and this project. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. My name is Ginger Donnell and I am the creator and host of Broken Boxes podcast. <laughs> Among so many other things, I I don't even know how to describe uh, like how I would introduce myself, but I do think that I align most with like kind of being a bridge um in a lot of ways also just being a format to support other people I like I guess literally being like a mat, (laughs) being something that people can (laughs) um have lunch. Wait, let me (laughs) okay I'll start over.
2: Yeah, I know I love I kinda I'm all keep it in. I kinda love this visual.
0: <laughs> I know, I'm like weaving reference, weaving a mat to yeah. have a picnic on in, in a park <laughs> with friends. <laughs> totally. no, I, I think that I think that I would introduce myself as somebody who um comes from a really kind of off grid rural background and um has carried that with me and then found myself working in like sound and tech and uh kind of broadcasting and theater and music and activating like community building community togetherness and building as like a an art form and carrying that through in all the work I do and yeah just just really I am a very empathetic human being I'd like to identify as being empathetic because Mm -hmm. I am so sensitive and it's um, kind of like one of my gifts I think Um, but it's also can cause a lot of like self-harm in my own practice because I tend to make myself really small so I don't hurt anyone or get hurt and I think that that's can be a real problem in the climate of the way we treat each other as human beings today so Mm -hmm. um yeah I just identify as uh as a girl in the world
2: I I can't help but start (laughs) to sing that song in my head I'm just a girl in in the world world.
0: I know and I really am trying to like be authentic and like Talking about how I want to introduce myself as far as like my values as a human being goes because it's something that we need to like consider more as we are in relationship with each other versus just um, identity as far Mm -hmm. as like outward facing identity politics. So, yeah, I'm a, a tender, kind friend, a mother, a artist, a DJ, an advocate, sometimes a disruptor um sometimes a bridge builder and um definitely a content producer.
2: Mhm. Knowing you for even longer than the lifespan as of this podcast, just as your friend, I can really say that's all accurate, you know? That's all really true in a lot of those words that you use to describe yourself, I would think of as liminal words, as like occupying spaces um, that are in between the things that we can really grasp as concrete concrete concepts or ideas. And one of the things that you assert and maintain through this work is the idea that complexity is resilience, which I think is so beautiful I would even say, like you mentioned, being a disruptor, that um, complexity can also be defiance right now. Mm -hmm. And it resonates with me so much. And it's rare that I think we get to have spaces like this where we can get into the nuance and the complexity of who we are in the world, but then also the work that we do. So I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more um, in terms of you and your work and this space and concept that you're really creating that complexity is resilience. Mm. What does that mean to you? Well, I think for
0: me growing up, you know, like I, I'm from Maui in Hawaii and it's very um, beautiful And there's so much sadness and complex ways of being there. It's kind of like known as a melting pot of cultures, of people. And everybody grew up together, kind of just like in each other's zones, in each other's spaces. There wasn't like a separation, like in school, like in high schools, where it's like certain kind of people hang out and other certain kind of people hang out. Like my group of friends, we came from... All different cultural backgrounds, um, lived experiences, um, genders, all all of the identifiers that kind of people put themselves in boxes that I'm noticing these days in my um, contemporary lived experience as an artist, like, kind of were disrupted in the very nature of the way we existed as community, as youngsters on Maui. And... Um, And I think that because of that way of growing up, I carried that with me into like all the places I had to navigate. And one thing that we both share is like being back and forth between worlds like a lot. Um, You traveled a lot as a young person. And um, I I remember like some of my first memories is like my dad, like, putting my hand into a flight attendant's hand and then clipping the Mm -hmm. little wings on me. And I would be hopping on the airplane from Maui to go to New Mexico to stay with my mom for the summer alone with my brother, you know, and we were like, I was like four and he was like six, you know, and we did that Mm -hmm. until we were teenagers. And so just like coming from a, a background that was like my dad like lived off-grid like we had like no power no water um we well we had water we had like water catchment you know but like Mm -hmm. we're off-grid and my dad's like a, a farmer and a carpenter and and just going into this world in New Mexico that was like the the environment was so different it wasn't lush it was dry the people didn't understand my accent my way of talking my way of thinking about the world I learned really quick that I I had to find a way to like access community through like being able to like celebrate our our differences I guess and it's mm-hmm. not even like d- cultural differences it's like literally like geographic differences you know and so that was like one of the main things I think that brought me into like finding part of my toolkit could be curiosity about people's experiences and like how, what are the similarities, even though there's so much difference. So I think that's like the, the root of that, like complexity as resilience is just being like, oh, well, we're completely different people. And we Mm -hmm. come from completely different places and backgrounds and ways of navigating the world and ways of speaking about the world and seeing the world, but you have a kind heart and I have a kind heart Mm -hmm. and we like similar music or we like, we both like painting or putting on plays Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that's like Mm -hmm. where the intersection comes in and that strength builds is because all of a sudden when you're engaged in art, as long as you see the value of each other and your contributions, like you can really become invincible collectively, I think.
2: Mm -hmm. I love that so much. And it resonates with me so deeply. And also it's like, I know it's so hard to articulate because the language kind of hasn't caught up yet to those experiences, although it's, you know, continuously evolving. One thing that I love about you, that you bring into your work is just like such a capacity for difference. And it's not even trying to synthesize those differences at all amongst people, ideas, projects, experiences. It's about just having space for all of it at once. And from your lived experience and your uh, upbringing, you were kind of forced into that, you know? just by nature of who you are, and how you existed and how you occupied like these really almost polar opposite uh, worlds and communities that from age four, you're going back and forth. And so it's really beautiful, because I think in this moment, that's not necessarily encouraged. I think a lot of Um, especially in the art world, we talk about this all the time and we can Mm -hmm. get into that. But a lot of what is like uh, being called for right now and what's being validated is um, having a lot of clarity amidst identity, that it can be really difficult to find the words to talk about those experiences of actually being forced into a capacity and not being able to only um, find home in one word or another, in one place or another. So it's cool because you didn't have to develop that in your work, that large capacity for difference, but you have throughout Mm -hmm. the years. And I think this podcast is exactly that. So I just want to kind of get into the name too, Broken Boxes Podcast. Yes. (laughs) And was there like, I mean, I can definitely draw from everything that you just shared, in terms of how that relates to this project. But I'm just curious, like what was the origin story for this project? Was there any like particular conversation or experience or thing that happened and just the creation of it and the name too? Mm. Well, there's like kind of several threads that wove together
0: to, to create this platform, I guess. The first one was... I am a weird weirdo. I like, yes. I like weirdos. I like people who don't fit into a prescription or who always challenge, even if it's unpopular, are always challenging what the masses are digesting. You know, I think that that's so critical, especially as artists, that whenever anything becomes over popular, you have to be critical about it and question it even though it might have initially aligned with your values, you know, because you can really um, put yourself in a box or like prescribe yourself a a value set that is not able to shift. And I think that culture is um, evolutionary. Like culture needs to shift and we need to like continue to like find new ways to practice our values and allow that to change as we like become in different proximity to each other. And so when I decided to start this project, I was actually pregnant with my second child Mm -hmm. and, um, I had a two-year-old son and I'm an artist, my partner Chinupa Hanska Luger, he's an artist. And I was feeling really isolated. I was feeling really, I guess, to be completely vulnerable, like left out of the conversation, you know, he was traveling a lot. He was hanging out with artists. He was like in the circuit of gaining momentum with his career. And I was so excited about that. Um, Mm -hmm. and also supporting it, you know, I was like learning how to do like project management and like studio direction through his practice. But Mm -hmm. I was like, where is my own space and my own voice? Like, where am I? I'm, I'm proud to be a mother, but I feel there's like a stagnant, part of me that needs to be expressed and like filtered, filtered out into the world or like reflected back or something. So I, I remember like walking in the dog park with my two-year-old son and I have this huge belly and I'm in Santa Fe and it's winter and I'm not super good with winter because coming from (laughs) Hawaii, I get like kind of depressed in the winter. And so I really have to like check myself. So I was just like, so uncomfortable and pregnant and has snow boots on and my little (laughs) two-year-old's running around. And, and I was like, I just need, I just want to like talk to some homies. Like, and I was like, I wonder who else is feeling this. You know, I wonder who else maybe doesn't have the exact circumstance as me, but like might be living rurally or like going through an experience that makes them feel some type of isolation. And I was like, we just need to have some like art conversations, you know? And the, and I was like, oh my God, like I'll start a podcast. I'll, I'll figure out how to do it because I have microphones. I'm like a, a sound person and I've had a radio show before. Like, like you said, podcasts, I think there was like this American life and like the moth. And there was like, probably like 12 podcasts that were really popular at the time. And and so I was just like, I'll figure out how to do it. So I um Googled it and I found out that you could like make a Squarespace account and like link it directly to a podcast, which you still can do. And it's very <laughs> affordable. Like you don't need much to start it these days. Yes. Back then it took a little more time, but um I called it art beat conversation, like ABCs of art making, like And Mm -hmm. the tagline was kind of like, what makes the human makes the art. So it was like a play on words. What makes the human make the art? And like, what makes the human also makes the art kind of like this. Love that. Yeah. So that was like the first year of it. And I think you were like the fourth or fifth person that I interviewed (laughs) in 2014. And it was tough all my friends at that first point and I was so nervous about like putting my own voice and mm. taking up any space that I literally like would ask a question and like edit myself out <laughs> so like if you <laughs> listen to like the first two or three episodes <laughs> I think the first episode was one of my best friends of all time DJ Inti and like it's basically like an hour of him like talking to himself because I edited that <laughs> 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 oh my
2: god, yes. <laughs> and then You're I interviewed Shinupa
0: <laughs> did the same thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Too good.
0: Yeah. And then I think it was about a year into it. Um and Chinupa had his kind of he's always been in the background supporting my practice, and I've always been in the background supporting his practice. Um, just kind of uplifting each other carrying the bags, you know, each other's roadies, so to speak. Um, yeah. <laughs> we used to collaborate a lot artistically, like before kids, but like while I was focusing on mothering as per my choice, um, I needed him to kind of help out a little bit here and there and vice versa, you know, on the back end for him. So, so he had his first exhibition, his like first solo exhibition after he finished school at IAIA, and it was called Stereotype misconceptions of the Native American and um, he spent a lot of time kind of unpacking like how to deal with his own relationship to his identity and like kind of do the same stuff that I was talking about about like allowing complexity to be that resilience and like this and that and so in his exhibition he like built all these ceramic boom boxes and then in a performance in the middle of the exhibition, he uh, let go of them. He like smashed them basically on like a rock and then put all the remnants up in the museum to display as kind of like taking back the power of like the stereotypes that people place upon you. And it, we were just doing a lot of like free thought around identity and the toxicity that comes with people imposing their own filters on you. and you know, your own community and also like external lens, like all of those layers of like, you're just existing. And then there's all these things kind of prescribing you what they want you to be without even asking permission, kind of, you know? So that really kind of inspired me to move beyond just a conversation, but to actually like break the boxes, that siloed way of thinking that you are this and you are this mm-hmm. and then you are this and neither the tween shall meet, <laughs> you know, like I was like, "Fuck that!" <laughs> we got to get real, you know, and also Chinu yeah. and I come from such different like places, you know, and so we're always teasing each other and laughing about like the way I think and the way he thinks is so different, you know, and, and so it just made sense to kind of like reconfigure and like go a layer deeper. And that also makes me think about, um, culture is evolutionary, you know, like any project you start, if you do it more than a few years, like there needs to be like revision in your intention and language and accountability to the communities that you're engaging with. And so I just felt like Broken Boxes was a a nice step forward. And it was inspired through the conversations I'd had with Chinupa, through my own community conversations with folks like you who are living in between worlds, you know, so often. Long answer.
2: Oh, please. (laughs) Let's get into it. I love it. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I love about your work is that the thing is, whether you're saying it um, in a public facing way or not, like your work is constantly thinking about dismantling systems of power and recentering uh people that are living at the margins existing at the margins. so this entire project and all of your work actually does center. BIPOC people, Indigenous people globally, centers, uh, you know, people of all different class systems and class backgrounds, gender, um, sexuality, you know what I mean? Centers queer and femme people. So that's the work that you're doing. And what I love, though, is that like, it doesn't matter if people know that or not, you know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? You're doing that behind the scenes, period. So the conversation gets to go so much deeper. And that's one of the things that has kind of like backfired on us as we're attempting to overcorrect these institutions of power that keep these old guard um, systems in place is that there's a way in which institutions have adopted this work that you've been doing and that we've been doing for so long, but it, it stops at the public facing um, arena. And so then the work actually doesn't get into the complexity and doesn't get into the differences. And the fact that like majority of people don't get to be seen in their complexity. Majority of people don't get to be fully recognized for all of the breadth of their experience and wholeness. So I feel like this work is so important because you're holding that space, creating that space, and then doing that work within your own artistic practice as well which I kind of wanted to get into the sound aspect Mm because I feel oh and and just to say too like one of the things that was so fun and so cool and it still is this way nine years later but like just to reflect when you first started doing this podcast it was so amazing to me because it was before the pandemic so it was before we had really grasped as a culture like long distance communication and community building, really, you know. So, <clears throat> I think I just moved to California in after we met in New Mexico, after like really building some incredible community in New Mexico. My community, and you know, this from growing up moving around, like has always been national, it's always mm-hmm. been all over the place, never like localized really into one place. So, I loved. It felt like getting to listen in on conversations between homies, you know, and just Mm -hmm. like having a sense of closeness and a sense of connection and intimacy. Like you were asking all of the questions that like we all wonder about each other all the time. And it's so like special and fun to be able to continue to to build our connections and our understandings of each other in the work that we're doing beyond distance. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's really, really special. So I want to take a minute to get into your sound work because a lot of people may or may not know intimately your artist' practice, I, I know that like a lot of us who have been a part of your community have been blessed by your DJ sets, um, mm-hmm. which are really special, which are really sound journeys, and I want to touch on that later. But, but I want to know a little bit more about your sound practice generally, and I thought we might just start with like basic. How would you describe what you make?
3: Mm.
2: I would say it's kind of
0: experiential. I don't know. I'm just trying to think back when I first like fell in love with sound. And I think it was like out in Mokupapa Valley where I grew up because it's like on this wind bluff and it's so fucking windy. Like mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> my dad got this hammock, like hand-me-down, you know, those like um, woven hammocks that have like the two wood, yeah. um, wood planks. So it's like, it's kind of held out. He put, mm-hmm. he put it up outside of the house and the wind was so strong that it would just like blow it sideways. And I would just like <laughs> go to the, we shopped at Goodwill and stuff when I was little. So like, I would always get like old prom dresses.
2: Yes. Oh my God. I'm just I like telling
0: the beginnings, the beginnings <laughs> of my career.
2: So I'm starts like, some wind and a prom dress. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I was left alone
0: a lot, you know, like we didn't have electricity um or very minimal, you know, solar voltaic back in the day, solar voltaic. So it was like literally like lights out when the sun goes down. Um but yeah, so I would like put on these Goodwill prom dresses I had like a few of them and the the wind would be blowing like 60 miles an hour like that's how it just was out there and I would just like pretend like I was like caught in a spider web like on the (laughs) on the hammock like save me and my dog would come up and like (laughs) try to like get me out like grab my dress But the wind that that sound like everything goes away, and you're like you're you can become transported into another reality through sound. the wind, wow. like nothing else existed because that wind was just like moving the energy you know of the moment like into my body into my creative spirit and I always think about that. Like whenever I'm making sound, I'm like, does this Mm -hmm. transport me? Is this Mm -hmm. able to transport me, you know? And so when I, um, when I, uh, there's so many stories to like figure out how I got to that moment. But like, how do I got to the moment of making sound myself? But I, um, along my journey, I, I found my way to Santa Barbara, to California, because my God family lives there. Um, and so I, I started going to college out there my godfamily's from Mexico. Um, and I m- moved into like a trailer behind their house when I was like, um, 18, cause I was just having a really hard time in my life. Um, and they took me in and they were like, go to community college here. You can stay here for free as long as you like do chores, you know, basically yeah. like get a job. So I met some homies out there who were into sound. I met Inti, who's like one of my best friends and he was really into like Lee Scratch Perry and like dub music and like really weird disco and um his his mom who's from Peru and his dad collected records, so we always would he would always show us the records and he worked at a record store, so I just started expanding what sound even meant through being in, involved in that community and then I met a bunch of like DJs out there who are like um just super record nerds and had like two turntables and like an old uh, vestax mixer in the living room of one of the homies houses they were all skateboarders and I was kind of like a butchy, a butchy young gal you know yeah. like I wore like skater pants and like uh yeah I just liked to um dismiss my femme side for a while I guess maybe it was all those prom dresses early on (laughs) the balance. (laughs) So I went super butch for a while. Yeah. And they just kind of took me under their wing. And uh, my friend Manabu, um, he's from Japan and he lives in Santa Barbara. He like taught me like basic crab roll scratches and like how to like um, mark a record to have a loop and like how to scratch. So basically taught me how to beat juggle and like, use turntables and DJing as kind of an instrument versus just like playing songs. And so that was really my introduction into sound um, beyond just like taking ukulele at in middle Mm -hmm. school in Hawaii and like just doing really traditional music, like uh, Hawaiian style music. That was like my introduction into like the weirdness that was possible. And then I just kind of, the love affair just continued. I started collecting records when I was 19 and I, yeah, now I have way too many thousands and thousands of records that I have carried with me across the nation. (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah.
0: And then just like, I think that tact that like experiential way that wind can transform environment as I got uh, more and more into making art and like, like finding out about like the art world and, moving into experiencing theater through going to college in, um, San Francisco in the Bay area, I've just always kind of collected field recordings and incorporated that into everything I do as a layer. So yeah, that is like, there's so many stories within there, but I think that's kind of like the broad stroke.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, the story you began with, it makes so much sense to me. (laughs) That is incredible. It makes so much sense to me because your mixes and the way that you create an experience of music it really does like blur the lines between music and sound and also between place and total placenessness placeness Mm. placelessness placelessness (laughs) Placelessness. (laughs) (laughs) when I listen to your mixes which are all really unique like you spend a lot of time on them um they are kind of like pieces you know but i i always feel transported it's such a fucking wild experience because it's really does take me somewhere that i don't necessarily go on my own within my mind or within my imagination and i also feel like you guide people through mm-hmm. an experience With your mixes, like I, I never feel like I'm staying in that same place. I always feel like we're kind of on a journey. Conductor Ginger, (laughs) all aboard! (laughs) Yes, choo 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 choo. Yep, (laughs) amazing. I love that. Yeah, so it makes so much sense that. Your experience of sound was about being transported and about like a full body experience. You know, it was a whole scene. I love this prom <laughs> princess being caught in the hammock spiderweb and being, uh, blown on a cliffside by the 60 mile per hour winds. Like actually that feels like a pretty accurate description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the birth of it all totally the origin story (laughs) do you think that it's because like you used this word earlier like just being a fucking weirdo in (laughs) the world do you think that's just being a weirdo is what kind of guided your journey in terms of sound from like this dj uh format to collecting just weird shit Like, at what point did you start like looking for the sounds outside of what you had inherited?
0: Hmm. I'm trying to think. Well, when I was in Santa Barbara, I worked, I got a job at Morning Glory Music where my friend Inti worked and they were all music snobs there. Like (laughs) super nerdy. Like they would be like, here's my new under the underground LA hip hop mixtape. Like it was all recorded live, like in a tunnel. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just like they were so cool. And then like there was a guy, a hip hop guy. There was like a like a techno guy who like knew all about like like house and electronic music from the um the london like the london rave scenes and there was just like all of these really like nerdy people that i got to be around and i have to be very clear that like when i grew up in hawaii like we had like hawaiiana music and we had like country (laughs) maniolo style like country and then reggae like Mm. all that's like pretty much the genres that i knew so um and when I would come to New Mexico, uh in the summers, I made some friends who were like they call they would call the, I don't know if they would call themselves it, but it's like a term in New Mexico <laughs> for like fucking metal heads and it's called like heshers. And it's Whoa, kind of I like this like Chicano, like fucking hardcore like metal and noise scene that was going on here. Like when I was a teenager and I would come in the summers. And they would do these things called unity bashes, like in abandoned like warehouses, um, which is what is now the rail yard. Like it was just like all these old warehouses and we would just kind of occupy them. And that was my like shift of like, you can take traditional instruments and like you can explore like Pulling them apart, you know. And then through the DJing thing with the turntable seeing that too through Manabu. And when I was um, I think when I was like 16, I got like a little tape recorder, and you could like slow down or speed up the vocals or whatever the tape was, you could um you could check the speed, you know, like turn it up or down. So I would like create like really experimental sounds with that. And I would record everywhere I went and every show I went to, I would record it on these tapes. So I have like hundreds of tapes from when I was like 16, like UB40, like at Maui Tropical Plantation and like Gregory Isaacs wow. at, the, at the Maui Arts and Cultural Center, like live. Granted, Holy it's like shit. the shittiest recordings ever, but <laughs> I just started like archiving then like, oh, this is amazing. Like tapes are cheap. And I have this. This tool, you know. So yeah. So I think that's kind of how um just going between worlds and seeing the different ways culture can be expressed, really mm-hmm. traditional or otherwise, like helped me to blend the worlds, I guess, and mm-hmm. archive it.
2: <laughs> yeah. I never thought about actually you probably have, but I never necessarily thought about your like the entire breadth of your work as really one of the fundamentals being the archive and archiving in so many different ways for your work for cultural work and then also for other artists as well can you talk about like was that just kind of like you know it sounds part of it was an instinct Mm -hmm. and just kind of part of what like it was that you had an impulse to do in terms of being really tuned into the sound of the world and the sound of the past. Mm-hmm. And what does the archive mean to you? Like, what is that project about of like mm. archiving in all these different sense.
0: Well, I think that because of how I grew up, I didn't have access to electronics or um, tech. And so it was like really exciting to both me and my brother, like when we finally gained access to it respectively. And so there's just that nerdiness of like, Ooh, something that we've never had. Like we had like an right. old tiny TV that I, we could barely get EBS, You know, if we like put <laughs> the rabbit ears all crazy, yeah. but we could only watch it for like 30 minutes, you know, because of the power. But yeah, I think that, um, I think that archive has been important to me because it it was just like this way to experience new worlds and relive relive experience, but also to be like really honest and vulnerable. Like, and I think many people in America, I can't speak beyond this um, country, but I wasn't, there's certain people who are really lucky to be gifted um, their, stories through their family lines you know what I mean like to be gifted really deep cultural understanding and journey knowledge and um be asked to be in the line of sharing that you know like they have accountability to cultural protocol to story, um, to story maintaining. Like a great example is Chinupa. Like he comes from a family who maintains very specific practices and ideas within his culture. And he has been called to continue that line. Um, that is not the case for me. And I don't think that's the case for a lot of people. And so I think. Like in all honesty, I think for me, like archiving, like my contemporary experience in the world around me, all the facets is a way for me to like develop a sense of like belonging to a long, a thing that exists longer and beyond my Mm -hmm. life and to tie, to tie me into, um, to a, a, a support. Uh, community support, you know, like I have an incredible community in Hawaii, an incredible family, and I, I don't want to like be disrespectful at all. Like I'm not trying to say like that's that they're not like super tapped in and like doing the good work, but it's not ever been. There's a lot of shame and a lot of um, secrets and a lot of cutting of cords that happen in uh, many people in America who have like mashups <laughs> happen yeah. in their in their heritage or in their ancestry and that can yeah. even be between nas- like nationally or culturally or even like gender um all those things can create ostracizing a generation from the larger community and then the generations that follow like get fucked up you know and have yeah. to like, go through a lot of repair and reconciliation and um shame And all that is like, it's so hard to even talk about, but I've just kind of, since I was very young, resigned to being like, that's not my work. Like I'm going to world build some, maybe it's part of like the sci-fi nerd in me or something. (laughs) Like I'm like, I'm going to like build with people who hold like-minded values and respect and honor wherever they sit within their communities culturally nationally but also like not not let that affect how we can be in relationship and so mm-hmm. the archive that i've always kind of created i think reflects and mirrors that community building for for survival and for thriving and for um finding empowerment you know
2: yep absolutely That's really, really incredible. I love the way that you contextualize that, you know, especially just in the conversation that we were having earlier, that sometimes within our, all of our nuances and our wholeness, when there's a call and when we need to centralize uh, uh, centralize one aspect of our identity or of our experience. There's something about that. And I think it's like just the language, the culture hasn't caught up, but there's something about that that happens to so many people where that suddenly like renders all of these other pieces illegible. And it becomes like really, really important to like stasis suddenly becomes like this goal, you know, something that people are working towards, which is pretty intense and The work that you're doing with sound, it makes so much sense that you would contextualize it within everything that you're just talking about because sound by its nature, it is fluid. It's constantly changing. It's Mm -hmm. not something that can ever be fixed ever, you know? Through time, through the present. Yeah, it makes so much sense to me that then that's where you're anchored. And so like in this moment when we're all so hungry to be seen. And so we let go of different parts of ourselves in order to be rendered legible for other people. There's something that's really powerful about embracing being unseen and that space where you're just kind of like, actually, that's not the most important thing. And then it opens up all of these, like, it just kind of allows, um, you to be exactly as you are in all of your contradictions Mm. and contradiction is something that you talk about and that you really, that you do, um, center in the work that you're doing of just like, yeah, let's fucking get into it. It's messy as fuck out here and (laughs) in in here and all of us is out there and out there is in here, you know? So let's be in the Mm mess and be in the contradiction And it also makes me think about in terms of your work and your sound art, like Hawaii is such a huge part of your origin story and such a huge part of who you are. And water is so important to you. And I know that just from our friendship, but just um, that water becomes like a really, really important anchor for you in the world and a really, really important connection And it's so kind of poetic that that's the case, right? Because water is constantly moving and changing and shifting. It's an entire body that covers the planet that's simultaneously connected and can never be contained, you know? It can never be like fixated in one place. And I heard, I wanted to know if you know anything about this, because I was thinking about that in relationship to your sound work. And I heard that water, keeps the record of sound for the entire planet, like scientifically, like it holds like echoes and echoes of like thousands and thousands of years that the sounds from thousands of years ago are still echoing and reverberating in the ocean. Do you know about this? I have never heard that, but that completely makes
0: sense. And I'm really here for that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, The power of the ocean is, yeah, it's I've never mat- met a match <laughs> for that power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I remember like being little, like I was in the ocean from the moment I was born, you know, my dad is a waterman. He's a surfer and he's all, he goes into the ocean at least once a day. And so growing up in the ocean, I remember like going camping out at the beach so we could catch food from the ocean and um, having a, a a fire and, just hanging out. And I remember like going in the ocean um, at McKenna, big beach on Maui. Like this is before tourism kind of took its roots over on that side of the island. But so you could camp there if you're fishing and you were like a local family. So I remember going out there and putting my whole body under the water. And I could hear like, I think it was like sperm whales. Like it was this clicking And it was, it wasn't dolphins. It was like deep and far, far away. And like just being under there and hearing all these sounds, like what sounded like animals and like, yeah, just really like understanding how great and vast the ocean was and how much power it holds and how much like unknown and possibility it holds. Like, yeah, just my experience with the ocean and the water is like been so transformative, I think, to the way that I think. I think about things not being face, like don't ever take anything for face value, you know, like the ocean has taught me so much. It's like, a. it is such a great teacher. It's taught me about like, look below the surface, you know, like, and also like to watch your back and to like be safe and to be smart and make proper decisions and look out for each other. And all those things, all the, all the lessons that I have around community at their core really have come from like, growing up on the land and in the ocean, I think.
2: Wow. That's so powerful. And there's so many, as you're saying it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's grandma. You know what I mean? That's like the biggest teacher. That's the matriarch of our whole planet, you Mm. know? Mm. And like so so many hard and supportive and gentle lessons at the same time, right? Like. Yes. Makes me think of too, like how humans um, that we know of have never reached the bottom of the ocean. Like when you're talking about total unknown and mystery, that of all the things that have been excavated and known and recorded about the history of the planet, that's one that isn't. That there's like no, at least right now in this day and age, like there's no data, you know, mm-hmm. there's no collection. There's some place on, on at the bottom of the ocean where it's like untouched by human beings, you know? And I think that's really beautiful, just thinking about your work as well, because you're holding space for that unknown, that not everything has to be transparent, not everything has to be um visible, that there's so much mystery and that there's so much unknown. And actually we can have Space for that. Um, in a way, when you are creating this sound archive, both like in conversation you know, in conversations in your DJ sets, in your artwork and sound installations, it's everything that you're recording. And then at the same time, what's there is everything that's not there, too. You know, mm. there's also like all of these holes and places that like mystery exists that people can engage with that I find myself drawn to and engaged with as well. In in a sense, like that's where this pro the broken boxes project came from too
3: mm-hmm. is
2: this space that was like not uh it was the empty space, you know? It was the space that wasn't being activated um that you felt called to. Mm-hmm. The conversation about how water acts that way and then your work, it makes me remember this project that you did when you and Chinupa and y'all's family were at Standing Rock Reservation where Chinupa and your, um, you and Chinupa's kids are from. And, um, you were there camping out and, uh, protesting and, uh, you know, with would you say you were water defenders or you're participating with the water defenders? How would you frame that? Um,
0: I would say like for me, I was just an accomplice, you know, because that's where yep. Chinupa from and his family's from and my kids are from. Because of that, like I just showed the fuck up, yep. <laughs> you know. But they they um, termed themselves water protectors. They don't really uh, many people, including Chinupa, like don't really like to use the word. Protest. they like to say that they're protecting the water. So it's just kind of like subverting that um,
2: negative into a positive. That's really cool. Yeah. Because I remember when you were down there, you started making recordings of the sounds of water. Mm -hmm. And you started to record just like the, uh, it was like so alive, you know, like just the sounds of like how alive that body of water is. And then you were also recording conversations with all different people about relationship to water and why they were there. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you want to like share about that project or the continuation of that or the origin of that even? Yeah, I think that I just,
0: I, I guess it's just compulsive behavior.
2: <laughs> like wherever
0: I go, I'm just like, oh, it's an opportunity to like yeah. archive something you know? Um, So yeah, I just, we were there. um, We went several times to like bring supplies and like to support and do various tasks um, for people on site. And um, yeah, we were there and it was like the end of summer and it was just a really beautiful time to be at the camps. So the Missouri River cut between the kind of Two camp spaces. One was kind of being termed as sacred stone, and one was kind of being termed as um, Ocheti Shakoin. And so I took an afternoon while Chinupa was like um, chopping wood or doing something, and the boys were kicking it with him to just kind of cruise around and I have my little handheld recorder and just meet folks and ask them about what they were up to there. And yeah, it was beautiful. Like there was a whole like community from Hawaii that was there there was like people from other parts of the world that were there of course many many Native American nations were there like together in solidarity like holding this really valuable space um to protect the water you know and yeah it was just it was such an impactful time for our family and I think that there's ripples of how important that time was and that we're going to continue to see the impact of that time of like the whole country and world mobilizing to like stand up for the earth and for water you know to our family like of course that place is very sacred to Chinupa and so we um wanted to participate and be active you know but also beyond that just what it means about that solidarity that community building despite differences that, um, coming together to, um, recognize our one true mother, like the earth and like the, the needs that the earth has, you know? So yeah, just, uh, record, I recorded one podcast and before we were able to go up there, like when shit first started going down and it was just like, um, youth and women who were like kind of holding the front line up there, I, wanted to do something to help so bad but we were broke and didn't have money you know so i this is so nerdy but i mm-hmm. i was like how can i who people who don't have facebook cuz facebook live just started like that year mm-hmm. and it was a super impactful tool on making that standing rock water protection action like glow a global consciousness um so i i recorded facebook live feeds from the front lines through like my recorder just plugged into my computer and then I re-transmitted them and rebroadcast. I like strung them together. I didn't say anything. I just strung them together and rebroadcast it saying like, this is what date it is up at Standing Rock. So people Mm. didn't have Facebook live or those Facebook lives don't always save after, you know, they could hear what was happening and understand what the calls were for the week or this or that or the urgency um so yeah that was I did I think I did like five or six of those and then I went up and then I went up again and then I went up again but that was like I was like that's the least I could do (laughs) it's just rebroadcast through another platform so yeah that work was some big heart work you know a lot of a lot of struggle a lot of sacrifice went into like supporting that uh, movement, but, uh, we'd do it again in a heartbeat if we had to, you know?
2: Yep. And you, I mean, you all are a family of artists. You're constantly reconfiguring your lives in a way to the pace of the work that you're here to do and your purpose. And I have so many questions about that, but I'm just wondering, like, from a personal, from your personal experience, as that as a family of artists have you ever felt like you had to fight for that i mean have you ever had so for example go out and get other jobs you know what i'm saying have you ever just like on a very practical level Mm -hmm. i think too because like when we have these conversations something that's been so important to me is that different moments on my artist's journey is i'm like really going through it i'm looking for like hey what are the other stories aside from the breakthroughs and the successes which are really important they Mm -hmm. are they are valuable stories to share with each other I really believe in that and also sometimes I'm just like yeah where were the places where you really had to like make some big decisions or did you ever feel like you had to fight for your lives Mm -hmm. as artists oh
0: yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) well which time
0: (laughs) um well, yeah, like when you're before you have kids, like when you're responsible for yourself, it's of course I don't want to discredit the struggle for anyone and I'm not trying to do that, but I'm just saying like there's the responsibility is um for your for your well-being and if you have like an extended family or partners that you have to like care for, right? And once you have children, you like literally are um, legally obligated to keep them alive. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a whole different like way of thinking about the future. And like, you know, I think for me and Chinupa, I could probably speak for him too. It's like before kids, you're just thinking about next week or like what, you know, when I first met him, like I had like barely... Ten bucks in my bank account, and I was DJing and working like three jobs. Like I worked in the film industry, like I bust tables and like cocktail waitress. I DJed, you know. I just did um, any odd end job I could find just to like pay the bills, you know. Um, And he also was doing that. He had little like. This is like in our early twenties, just so you, for context, you know, right. and, um, you know, he worked, um, odd end jobs. He like did construction and like landscaping and worked at a coffee shop and sheared sheep or whatever, you know, just like whatever <laughs> little job could like pay the rent. And he lived in a warehouse with some other artists and, and it wasn't luxurious, you know, and, uh, you know, I lived in a shared housing situation, like, uh, with a bunch of my queer community. And it wasn't luxurious. We had our water shut off, you know, at one point, this and that. Luckily, I know how to live without running water. <laughs> right, right,
2: right. <laughs> but,
0: um, you know, there's just like the those moments that come through that are struggle. And um, when we were together, I think for about like three years, um, one of my dear friends had been uh, who I knew from Santa Barbara, whose name will not be mentioned <laughs> um he had been working up on a weed farm growing weed in california and it was like medical marijuana was legal at that point so you could like have a plot of land and like with a certain amount of people you could have like a collective garden and grow weed um and weed was still legal illegal in new mexico you know so he was like hey i I worked on this garden i made a bunch of money do you guys want to come out and trim you know so we went out and trimmed for one year and made like it's not worth it <laughs> Like, <I> was like <laughs> it was worth it for us because we were broke ass right. poor but like when I think about how like how much money we made for how we like basically worked 14 hours a day <laughs> right it's super hard work yeah so we did that for a year and then the next year mm-hmm. he was like hey I'm moving to another garden and that garden you trimmed on is um, needing like garden people, like people to like grow the weed basically. And he knew that I, my dad is a farmer and I come from um, that background. So he was like, do you and Chinooka want to do it? So we basically like put our tiny amount of belongings in a storage and drove our truck out to California and like literally lived outside in the dirt with no electricity and no running water for nine months and grew a garden and talk about risk and paranoia. Like we were up all night with like our little pellet gun and like, there was like shady ass motherfuckers all over. And it was just like, so surreal and scary. And we kind of risked everything at that time because it was, it wasn't like the temperature that it is now in America. Like it was still very like, uh, shady and not legit in a lot of ways, even though it was like a medical marijuana garden, there was just like so much weird, dark energy around, around it in a lot of ways. But we did that. We took that risk because both of us wanted to be artists and wanted to just kind of like have a footing somehow. And that opportunity presented itself. So we went for it and we, we made some money, not a lot like when I think about it, I'm like, wow, that w- really wasn't worth it either. But <laughs> when you have nothing, you get to start from there, um, start from something, you know? And um, we just, we didn't go on like some Bali vacation or buy a Corvette or do stupid shit. We like literally invested it in a little piece of property, you know, with a a warehouse on it. And like remodeled it. And like having that security, just having to not have to like, first of all, we don't live in an urban environment where rent is ridiculous and we have to like go out and eat and pay extreme prices for everything. We both love living rurally. We grew up rurally. So just our values being okay with being poor or like living in a way that might seem quote unquote classes poor, you know. Um, and we love that and we thrive in that environment, like really helped us to be able to take huge risks creatively, be able to be weird and fail and fail again and fail again and, you know, not get the grant or not get the show or not, you know, not get this or that and not be like, oh my, it's over. Like fuck them, fuck everything. Nobody gets me. Nobody hears me. I'm like Nobody's heard us for a long fucking time, but we had the privilege of taking a really big risk and getting a little bit of security to, I mean, we both are, come from poor families, you know, we both come from the dirt, (laughs) you know? So we were able to take these risks that I think allow us to maybe be presented as being successful, but I think that's also that weird identity nodule that like grows on you where it's like Mm -hmm. success, what does success mean to anybody? And like, for me, success means peace and it means joy Mm -hmm. and it means like feeling safe in my home and in my community and not many people have that. So I feel very privileged and successful to have that, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So that's like, I am not, i am not saying like, this is what you do grow, grow weed, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> I'm just saying like the, if an opportunity to take a risk or think outside the box of like what Western society has like prescribed for you as like the road to success, like take the leap, especially if you're younger, because If you fail when you're younger, before you have family or responsibilities in that way, you can bounce back and always like pivot, you know, but if you never take that leap, you're going to have to sit with regret or remorse or frustration. And like the, the weed farm is just like what presented itself in our choose your own adventure. Like everybody's is different, you know, like everybody has their own version of that.
2: That presents itself. And do you go left or do you go right? You know? Mm -hmm. That's so valuable, everything that you just shared. And I really appreciate you going into the background, you know, of that risk and even the sense of fear and the stakes, you know? What was at stake with that risk? Because I can imagine, you know, that's a really monumental example of what you all went through and the choices that you had to navigate and make. But I imagine, you know, that those same themes of risk and failure and fear have come up in many different ways, big and small along Mm -hmm. your journeys. And right now, it's really beautiful to see to see all the successes and the life that you all have made. But I I really do want to highlight that you offered around success. Like, what does that actually mean? And to center that and for you I love that 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 was peace
3: mm-hmm.
2: and joy and family and connection mm-hmm. um I have like two more pages of questions believe it or not but I'm <laughs> I wanted to be mindful of time because I'm just seeing that we've been ch- chopping it up As we do, this is kind of how our meetings go. Like Ginger and I uh, meet, we'll get into that in another episode, I'm sure, um, weekly. And this is kind of how our meetings go, just like chopping it up, talking around the world and then coming back to the everyday practical stuff. So Mm -hmm. just quick temperature check. How are you feeling in terms of- I'm feeling
0: good. We've been talking for about an hour, I'd say, because we kind of had some mic- check stuff happening so I mean I'm good for probably another 30 minutes but it's oh, up great. to you yeah cool I would love to
2: I would love to yeah. go back a few points yeah so I did just kind of want to get into the nitty-gritty about like things that you touched on just because I think they're like such valuable conversations for artists and a lot of times we don't get to like lift the veil around really. Uh, personal yet um, frequent experiences of rejection and failure specifically and it sounds like through everything that you've been through you developed actually really healthy relationship with failure but I'm wondering like was that always the case you know what have your experiences been with something like rejection where that's like a pretty high um, percentage you know in terms of like Uh, experiences as an artist in the economic climate that we're in. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've learned a lot from you that I I just love so much is being so resourceful outside of the supposed economic systems. And that's because of who you are and your experience, but just kind of being like Yeah, we're good outside of all of that. Like you really hold steadfast onto that attitude of like, we're good. You know, like you were saying before, we've been doing this a long time and these opportunities are great and that's important and it's important to be able to build a life. And that's only one avenue. There's like so many other avenues that we've already carved out for ourselves. So Mm -hmm. I think that's very clear with everything that you've been speaking on. And have there ever been moments where you've been really stuck in uh, an experience of rejection or failure? And how have you come to that, like more healed relationship with those things?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, because of the nature of the work that I do personally, I don't put myself in a position of like forward-facing rejection too often, to be honest. I think I've kind of like created and built my world as like a shell with which I am protected from rejection. And I'm just kind of coming to terms with coping with moving beyond that, like in this conversation, (laughs) caring about myself. But I also, I think for me, like beyond rejection, like in the art world, And all of that, um, for me personally, I think my greatest fear is rejection from my community because of all of the, just all the stuff we've been talking about because of like, that's like really what brings me joy and peace. And that's what makes me feel whole is to be able to be a part of something greater than myself and be supportive and like build with with other people and so I think it's yeah like I even get short of breath just thinking about it like I get really nervous to not ever do the wrong thing and I think we're in such a climate where it's like call out culture cancel culture excruciating like public shaming and for good reason to some extent for people who have really caused harm in communities like I want to acknowledge like I think that the root of some of that is for good reason, because it's harmful to communities, what certain people are doing. But like, for me, like, I think my biggest fear of failure is that I showed up improperly for the communities that I'm in relationship with. And I have like, deep fear about that, like, and like, like anxiety around like doing things wrong almost debilitating at times I have to be honest where like I don't want to overstep my boundary or take up space that's not mine to hold so I I continually like give other people opportunities and space that are um, allowed to me personally because maybe it's like imposter syndrome or just like that empathetic part of me right somebody else deserves it more than I do so I can get the next I can get the next opportunity like that kind of thing I I would say like I don't know if that's like like a reflection of failure that I've had to go go through but that's definitely something that I reckon with that perhaps uh, like other people who identify as artists are reckoning with when to Take an opportunity and when not to, because of like who you are or who you've been filtered through other people to be, and those perceived notions of identity, and like especially like what we talk a lot about in our own work together outside of this podcast is like about like the prescription of identity and then like the issue that is arising with institutions like doing these huge efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion and how it actually benefits them and their bottom line. And these artists are just kind of can become tokenized or their work can become undermined for the actual like content and material and thought. It's just about getting that box checked, right, for their DEI effort. And so um, I think all of that is creating a lot of like community fear, infighting, um, devaluing of one another, othering. And yeah, it brings me a lot of anxiety as somebody who's creating content that I don't do anything wrong, that I know my place, that I shut up and sit down when I need to and speak up when I need yeah. to. And yeah, maybe that's like me dealing with failure or figuring out how to navigate um, the the world that we find ourselves in today and to be as authentic as I can while like being as complex as I can. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question, but I feel like that's like the most honest response to how it pertains to me in my
2: practice. It totally answers my question in unexpected ways. And I really, really appreciate you going there. Because just as you were talking about redefining success, you're also redefining what failure is and what failure means to you and even what rejection means to you, Mm -hmm. which I, one, I I just relate to so much. So I'll, I'll like everything that you're saying strikes a chord within me and my own experience as well. But I think that it's really useful, actually. Maybe just as much as defining what a success is is also visit, revisiting like what is that measure of failure also the um what we talk a lot about often too is just having more space for challenging experiences, for messiness for, for failure, actually, for coming up short, you know, and trying again. I, it's funny, I wanted to say I reject, but um, (laughs) like, what what is rejection to me? I reject, I reject (laughs) this rejection. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) I reject like the notion of value system where purity is at the, at the top, you know? Or there's something that's like very sterile about needing to be correct Mm -hmm. or even like correction being what is most favored and most important when it's like a lifelong, like this is lifelong project of being a person in your community of being someone who is empathetic. And kind and caring and is able to really see other people and is able to show up in a way that does uh, dismantle oppressive systems that are violent and that are hurting us. And to be able to see outside of your own experience, like all of that and how to be able to like honor and recognize people and the ways that we uh, address each other and to be like just decent fucking human beings like that's lifelong. That's not that the, the pressure to just inherently know that some of that does come with lived experience, right? these things that we're forced to reckon with because we don't have another choice. Like, yeah, some of that does come through lived experience and also to be able to come with a certain amount of humility that you can't know every, how people experience the world and that it is valuable to listen. And within that, the failure to do so is the only wake up call, you know? Like the failure to do so is the only time when we get to witness our own inability to show up in the ways that we want to. So then like, I love that reframe around failure. And while I totally, I feel so fucking anxious about that all the time. And it resonates with me the experience of just feeling like paralyzed, you know, not knowing what to do. And then I just think about like, since when were artists supposed to be acceptable members of society or respectable in any (laughs) shape or form like when did that happen because I never signed up for that (laughs) I never signed up for being like a respectable member of society at all so like (laughs) can I build my own capacity for messiness even if I'm the one that's fucking up you know what I mean Mm, yeah (laughs) wow and you know that's so
0: beautiful because I think that's something that needs uh, a little bit of attention maybe in the collective consciousness it's like there are people who are doing that work who are like culture bearers or like um protocol holders or, you know, like definitely like historians or academics who are like maintaining, like they have to be accountable, but their, their art like shifts almost into like cultural preservation or like historical record. But for some reason, like that got shifted into like the accountability that all artists who are exploring all ideas need to hold so yeah it's 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 a very complicated time right now
2: (laughs) yeah totally yeah and maybe this is the time like I, i always think about the process any process of transformation or transmutation or alchemy like if you just think about it in terms of like real baseline physical elements like in order to like the process of alchemy there has to be a breakdown process that it just it isn't like a a, um, although you know I'm a nerd so I do wish it was a magic wand just going (laughs) boom boom this thing that thing I'd be into that but like the process that we're working with is a process of like breaking down becoming something completely nothing and, and indescribable and then creating again to become something completely different so it's like we're in that breakdown moment. And it Mm -hmm. is challenging and it's difficult and painful and unknown and scary. And also so much aliveness within that and so necessary. So I just really appreciate you bringing that to the conversation. And because it's not all cut and dry and we're all like dealing with that in different ways on a really personal level. And so I really appreciate just the ways that you're holding space for that in your art. It makes me think of, um, you've used words to describe your work, which I think are so on target. And they're also really new. Like I heard you in the beginning, you said um, bridge, very accurate. You said accomplice, definitely. And then I've also heard you talk about your work as a witness. I love that because it's carving out a space for something that's taken for granted as a passive role or a passive activity. And then you're centering that as like, no, this is labor. This is my work. This is a practice of being a witness and a bridge and an accomplice. And I was just wondering if you could like, just share a little bit more about how you, came to that and that language for the work that you do because it it's not a title or a job title that is given to anyone or that exists really like artists even you know or doctor or chef or um mailman you know what I mean like I don't know I'm just off the dome here but
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a witness woman yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I think it's just like having to find language to pair with something that doesn't exist or hasn't been contemplated. I mean, we're every moment we live is a moment that's never been before. Right. And so like, I'm just trying to like ride that wave, like be be present on the wave and not fucking get pounded, (laughs) you know, and just like be able to like, not become stagnant because I love, I love witnessing. I love being curious. I love listening. I love being empathetic. I love being in community. I'm such a, Even though I have social anxiety, like many people do, I'm such a social creature and I love community and, you know, sometimes community can harm one another and sometimes you have to let go of certain aspects of what you thought was good for you, you know, and we all, we all have to go through that. But as long as we can also witness ourselves, you know, and be very mindful of our own wakes and what we're doing and not have it be right? So I think it also ties into that, um, reject that rejection, that fear of rejection, you know, and that failure aspect is like, it's exactly like the, the mirror of like the work, right? It's like, for me, I feel like as an artist, for me, and I think a lot of artists feel this way, is like, you're actually in your true creative flow when you feel a bit uncomfortable, when you're mm-hmm. like, unsure and you like have like almost like a queasy stomach because it's just Mm -hmm. like where am I going (laughs) (laughs) and I think that that's uh, sometimes what this this work of witnessing can feel like because you know sometimes I have to um you know be invited into places that have really heavy protocol that aren't mine and it's not my culture it's not my community and I have to like know how to really show up and hold space and um, witness without imposing anything into a space, you know, and it's a very beautiful and tender art form. And I've talked with my friend Tia Clear Sky about this a bit because she's a, um, a Maori filmmaker and she goes and documents like traditional tattoo and stuff. And she talks about this. I think she talked about it on our Podcast that we did together a couple of years ago, but just about um, like to be mindful to know your wake. Like, like you just can't walk into a space and just kind of prescribe you, what you think everybody is and what you think everybody's role is and what you think your your role is and this and that. It's like every moment in life can be a new opportunity to like totally have the script flipped, you know, on, on your own misconceptions and of yourself and how you're in community with people of how other people need to be related to, like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's just this huge, there's this huge gap happening in the way that we're sharing information where there's not long form space anymore. Like we, Mm -hmm. We don't have more than a hundred characters or fifteen seconds to like express our entire being <laughs> and then our entire like ancestors' being and our entire spirit and there's just like no room anymore in the way that we're sharing information, and I feel like it's like harming us, and so I feel like i came to being a witness and a bridge builder from such a young age because i felt oftentimes unseen or misunderstood and teased and you know like bullied and uh harm caused upon me in many ways just because of who people thought i was without knowing my whole story and i just don't want other people to have have that as they grow up and carry that with them and I've Mm -hmm. I just really hope that my work can like provide access to other people's stories that even if my story is not relatable to them like somebody that I'm in community with that they might not be in community with can inspire them to like feel like it's important that they're alive and that Mm -hmm. they um continue to make work and to try to fail and succeed and do all the things that life is because yeah, when I was younger, I didn't always have that, you know? And I think maybe that's why I decided I wanted to be a witness because I, um, yeah, I just didn't always have that reflection in my, or that resource or access to more complexity.
2: Yeah, absolutely so important it makes me think you know zooming into the micro and then zooming out to the macro which is the work that you're doing probably 50 times a day you know Just like it's like a way of life and you talked about being bullied I have that um experience too that can, that's that is like that can really fuck you up you know Um, and it's like such an intense, uh, experience as like a little person, you know, as like a younger person. And it strikes me just like in the whole conversation that we've been having, like that people create systems and systems are internalized by people. And it's kind of like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, I think it's really important. Like we're all showing up in the ways that we're called to show up. And I really value the ways that you've been called and that you continue to show up around like creating, like the work that you're doing, as you just described it, is a, about a system breakdown. It is about um starting to open up and break apart. On a really personal level, and therefore, a system-wide level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really important. Really beautiful. Do you think about your kids when you're thinking about that too? Like, has that has that amplified that need to to do that work, or has it always just been that like urgency um, and empathy? Mm-hmm. I think about
0: my kids. Some with this work, I mean, Eo, my older son, who's ten now, wants to um, have his own series on this podcast. And you know, like we're 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 talking about all the art with them. They produce art with us. They roll with us. But uh, the biggest thing in reflection to what I, would, I was speaking with you about, and that you're asking about, is that like we homeschool. Like we. I mean we, we we're kind of calling it self-directed education, but they're not in school. And I think a lot of that has to do because Chinoop also grew up between worlds from on the res up at Standing Rock to like the Southwest, you know, to like Scottsdale, Arizona, which was like super, you know, like weird, like capitalist culture, you know, and then growing up like on the res, and that's like such a different experience. And then me growing up between Hawaii and then coming to New Mexico in the summers, like we see how hard it is to bounce in between schools because it's one thing to move in between like geographical locations and have to deal with like the environmental shift, but having to deal with like other people's kids who have like fucked up like views of the world or very narrow views of the world, like having to like just... Jump into that is like, yeah, like that is so that can be so hard on, like you said, like a little a little mind, and I mean, I'm just like remembering one year, like my dad had a big project, he builds houses or he doesn't anymore, but he used to out there um a lot in Hana and stuff, and he had a big project, so I just spend like half of fifth grade i think it was in new mexico this is just going on a tangent but like i don't know in hawaii there's like a lot of a lot of untended to rage because of um forced occupation of indigenous lands you know and um it's a it's this melting pot of all these cultures but these cultures all kind of can rub against each other and get on yeah. each other's nerves and stuff so yeah there was like a lot of um hatred going on in in the schools that was really harmful to a lot of community. And I witnessed that. And then I went to, had to go to school in New Mexico and I witnessed the same thing between the cultures in New Mexico. I could see the same kind of like conflict happening, I guess, in both spaces. All these things rubbing up against each other and then playing out from you can tell from like the dinner table of their parents or grandparents and then they come to school and just like mirror that to each other right and I just remember having an epiphany of like how fucking grossed out I was that like it existed everywhere you know that you couldn't escape like like the toxicity of how we treat each other you know right and like I remember just really making a choice that um that I didn't want to engage with that in my life, you know. Just being like, I I choose not to other people, you know. I choose not to like fucking make people small because of like,
2: what's the fucking point, you know? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's really important. It, it it touches on actually like another topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is education. Maybe like zooming out a minute into like arts education because. This is a hot topic. I don't know in terms of like the conversations that you've been having. I've heard a little bit, um, on, on this podcast too, which has been like really wonderful, but this conversation around art and academia, you know, for me and a lot of my artist peers, there was no, um, access to the art world really outside of, um, entering into academia and it's such a like complicated place and a lot of people I've been having conversations with artists who are sitting with um who maybe don't have access into the art world also um and that seems like the only door that's just like propped open maybe you can get in kind of thing you know and are sitting with the question of like do I need that is that the route to go you know Mm -hmm. um because the sacrifice for so many of us is actually really, really big uh, to go enter into that world and i know that you have had an education in the arts to a certain point i did you study in rome at some point is that am i remembering that right or do a program I, in italy
0: yeah i did a study abroad program it was art and language um i guess it would be considered like my sophomore year of college I was uh, signed up for community college in California and they offered these study abroad programs that were quite affordable so I went and studied art and um, language for like four months in Ferenze oh <laughs> <laughs> I'm all <allora. laughs> but again it's me hustling like what's the cheapest way to like have some experience you know like I was like oh I'll go through like community and I got like a Pell grant, which, you know, I think the whole, um, experience at that time, which was like, um, a long time ago, I was, I think I was like, I turned 21 in Italy. So yeah, I was like 20 when I went over there. Um, I think the whole experience cost about $2,500, um, to live there and like study. And it's probably much different now, you know, but I went through a community college. Like I literally registered, school at that college because I found out that they did this cheap study abroad
3: program <laughs> <Hell> yeah!
0: <laughs> it was just like finding like finding your own path finding your own way you know and yeah it does tie back in from micro to macro because I was just talking about like um having my kids homeschooled because of yeah. like that pain and othering that um can stick with you into adulthood and then I think that that also transmits into like Um, the perceptions around like what is expected for success as an artist and just peer review and scrutiny and like um, what is art, like what is considered art and like how it can really have long-term like harm caused on artists who aren't like really prepared for that type of like critique and the toxicity of the art world and go into like these institutions um, these institutions, these schools that, um, have these prescriptions for just kind of like pumping out like contemporary art and like dehumanize, uh, the, the artists themselves in the process. And I know mm-hmm. we've talked about that with even your experience of going to, um, higher education, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's good or bad because I have several art friends who are, quite successful, who swear by their education, who swear by it, you know, like Raven Chacon, like in my interview with him in like 2015, I think he, that was like one of his points of advice was like, go get your education, you know? And then there's other people like Chinuba who just graduated with a bachelor's at IAIA, but like literally did his own thing in like on a back table, you know, because he couldn't, he has like neurodivergence and like, couldn't go along with that program, you know, and these are peers activated in the art world together simultaneously. Right. So I think Mm -hmm. beyond that door, like going through that door, it's like recognizing what your personality type is and what you're like willing to, what you're, what you want your outcome to be as an artist, because there are like a really, a lot of academic artists right now who are thriving and their work and research is so relevant and I know that that was activated and nurtured through academia like I think about like Wendy Redstar who is an indigenous crow artist who does a lot of research based on her ancestry and puts that into her work and it she just it's to me it seems like she can thrive in academic spaces you know right where there's other artists who I know who are wildly successful, like kind of reject some of those things, you know, in their practice, you know? So there's, I don't know. I just don't think there's a prescription of what's right or wrong, but I do know that when you go to higher education, you get in debt yeah, (laughs) and that puts you in a position of stress and that stress makes it so you can't take risks and be a weirdo. And that is hard for an artist to like have to, like make a bottom line when artists need like time to flow and be in another universe creatively, you know, and I think that pressure of student loans can really harm an artist if
2: they aren't careful. That is so real, really, really valuable pieces of information and advice, you know, just seeing it like retrospectively, because when you're in it, making those decisions, It's so hard to, like, be able to step back and really look at a long game, you know, Mm -hmm. especially if, like, you're trained in living moment to moment and just getting from through one thing to another, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really, really helpful. I I was wondering, this is, like, my section of, like, all the questions I want to ask Ginger where I don't have very good transitions in between. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Let's just go for it. I'm here. <laughs> what is one idea that you're obsessed with right, right now? My obsession. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm like, there's a few that I won't say publicly, but <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm really, as far as like my work and my practice goes, like I'm obsessed with like uncovering the values of people versus judgment of people based on identity checkboxes. So I'm really kind of obsessed on understanding what people value and how they, um, engage within their communities versus like, kind of like reading all their credentials and giving them the the sign off or blue check, you know? Like I'm just, I'm kind of so tired of the moral codes that we're enacting on each other that I almost like, there's part of me that wants to disrupt it and like bend bend the other way. But I'm like, I don't wanna cause harm in any of my communities, So I'm like, perhaps a way through this instead of disrupting and rejecting it because it is important. We need to like have more visibility in mm-hmm. the arts world is to start to move to the next step. What are the values of the people that we are interested in celebrating and idolizing right now? What are their values and how, how can we react to that as a society in a positive way? Because if people are come from broken places, which it's just such a conundrum because a lot of people do come from broken places they need time to mend they need resource they need community to like help them become better people but right now we're just like throwing throwing people away you know we're just like literally like you're garbage you fucked up you're garbage and that's like prison industrial complex mentality so right mm-hmm. now i'm obsessed with what the alternatives could be to Mm -hmm. like care about each other, even when we're harmed by each other and like look to the roots. So like, that's like the deep care and the deep obsession right now. And it's not very public. Like I don't talk about this a lot because it's, it can get misconstrued I think as like, just not caring about what's important to the, popular society you know so I'm yeah I'm just really unpacking it slowly with care and like yeah this is like it's about I'm interested in people's values and how to nurture healthy values whatever that means and then what I'm obsessed in like more of like a fun thing because I can go so deep so quickly accidentally (laughs)
2: love it that's why we're friends
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um I would say what I'm kind of obsessed with right now like just as like a joy bringer is sports yes yeah we talked about this (laughs) I'm so I've never been into like organized sports in my whole life like I paddled canoe growing up and I was um I was like part of a all women's team for many years and like that's a sport but it's like very specific to Hawaii (laughs) I mean, it was that and surfing and boogie boarding, you know, Um, but like just literally in the past, like four or five years, I've been obsessing on sports documentaries and basketball kind of specifically recently in the past couple of years and the alignment of like basketball players and artists, especially like um, marginalized community artists, like artists who come from like non-privileged white spaces And basketball players who like go into the NBA, the parallel in those stories are so incredible and moving to me because you watch a documentary about Shaq and I'm like, Oh my God, that's like one of my cousins. Like that's, that's like a story of my cousin, like (laughs) making it to be like a, a singer songwriter, you know, it's like the awkwardness of coming from nothing coming from poverty, coming from like richness and community, you know, and culture in those ways. But like not having that monetary knowledge and then getting thrust into these spaces of like fame and money and like having to navigate what that means, not only to you, but to your entire community. I don't know. I'm just like really obsessed right now about sports
2: and the psychology around it. Hell yeah. I am right there with you. Totally obsessed with sports. Uh, you know, I couldn't tell you what's happening in the game, but as a metaphor, <laughs> yes, yes. Sports. As an analogy, yes.
0: Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> yeah, sports.
2: <laughs> sports, a story through the ages. <laughs> oh. I
0: hear you though. It's so real.
2: <laughs> It's so interesting. Yeah. It's And like as cultural events, it's kind of me and Kingston, my partner talk about this all the time because it's kind of like one of one of the last, at least I can't speak to other places in the world, but in the United States, like it's kind of one of the last like major public uh, like arenas or something. It's fucking wild. Mm -hmm. also like i'm a fantasy nerd and we talk about other worlds like sports is a completely different world for me so it's like so fascinating and so everything that you're talking about the parallels like i had never thought about that until you mentioned it but it's so true it's so inspiring there's so many different parallels to those worlds and even how you know athletes and artists are both monetized and marketed as individuals, yes. you know, mm-hmm. and their stories are are marketed and monetized. Yeah, really straight cool. up. Yeah, I just yeah. watched
0: this documentary on Hulu like I was watching it till like midnight and I was so tired and I fell asleep and then it went away. <laughs> and I'm like, I hope it comes <laughs> back. <laughs> Cuz I had like four more episodes to watch, but it was called Basketball and Other Things. And it's literally talking about like the life of these basketball players who like made it to the NBA and um, like just their experience with like that culture shift, you know? And I was like, oh my God, this is literally like half of my friends like who are artists, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. And you've been um, like, I've learned, I feel like I've learned so many uh, things from, Attitudes around failure and rejection, actually, in terms of like hearing uh, athletes, the kind of like mentality that you have to be in, in order to enter into a public arena when you have had when you like are just coming off of a loss, you know, or being able to like rock with the flexibility of like the unknown and really not knowing like if like just it being so much more nuanced than like winning or losing you know and having to have a certain mental stamina as well as like these people are fucking flying like they're defying gravity it's so (laughs) mind-blowing to me yeah yeah straight up I'm there with you that's my obsession (laughs) I love it um what is your favorite color I'd
0: say red I've always yeah yeah red pretty much what is your perfect meal uh if I could have my perfect meal it would probably be a plate lunch which for y'all who don't know it's like it's white rice with like um some type of protein usually like breaded and fried or teriyaki style on top. And then maybe some lomi lomi salmon, which is kind of like a salmon ceviche. It's like a, a Hawaiian style, like food that kind of represents all the mashup of cultures in Hawaii. And that's like the guilty pleasure favorite meal. Love it. <laughs> but if yep. I was going to go for like what I'm actually eating right now, because I'm really trying to be on this health kick and mindful, I would say it would be... um like a a big glass of freshly squozing carrot juice and why? Freshly squeezed? Oh, squeeze. Squeezed?
2: No, it's squozing now. Frozen. You don't squeeze your oranges. Oh my god. Oh yes, excellent. Frozen carrots are carrots. juiced
0: juiced carrots and a um, grass-fed beef stir-fried with um, some yummy kale and garlic and that's mm-hmm. like in a tortilla wrap <laughs> yeah I love this. that's my health food like I'm in my 40s gotta stay fit ginger meal mm-hmm. but my dream love meal it. is a plate lunch
2: <laughs> love it I'm, I'm really glad that I asked that question um both of those meals I haven't had and now I'm looking forward to it at some point. <laughs> You're gonna have to try some scos and carrots. Yeah, I never <laughs> had a scosed carrot. <laughs> First thing in the
0: morning before you drink your coffee.
2: Um, I wanted to close this in the way that you do. Mm. Well, I'm adding on a little a little spice at the end. We'll get to that. But um <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Is there a, is there a piece of advice that you want to offer to other artists out there? When
0: everything seems to be kind of falling down around you and you've even lost trust in yourself because shit is just hitting the fan, there's another day. Like literally, there will, you will feel better. You will get through it and you will have other opportunities. And coupled with that, I just really want to note going back to like how do you deal with failures that you asked earlier is for me personally and even with Chinupa, you know, just the way we navigate failure, we fail all the fucking time. Like the amount of losses that we have had outweighs any perceived success through like the filter of social media by 150 percent like the amount of times that we have failed have been immeasurable to the amount of times that we have succeeded but we don't see them as negatives we see them as learning experiences as growth points and that is success right there if you keep failing and never learn or give up you you lost because you're, you're not pushing yourself. And every time you don't get something, there's an opportunity for you to get it again later or get something even better. So like, don't put all your chips in one, in one basket. Is that how it goes? All
2: your eggs? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Eggs, chips.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm like still learning about all these puns. Yeah. I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> are they puns? Are they even called puns? I don't know. Yeah,
2: what are they called? Terms of praise. Euphemisms? Yeah.
0: all <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, just like that would be like my advice coupled with the other thing like take a walk, take a nap, try again the next day. You got this. Like there's always a next day. And things will always get better even when you're in your darkest hour. I promise, because I've been in my darkest hour and I got through it. And right now, Amaryllis and everybody who's listening, like I feel so excited about life. I feel like Mm -hmm. it's just getting started and I'm pumped. So don't give up. Fail fast, fail often. That's what Chinupa always says to me since we first started dating. (laughs) I oh yeah.
2: Fail fast, fail often. Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. Everything you just said, so valuable. Is there anywhere um, where people can learn about upcoming projects that you have going on?
0: Hmm.
2: Or anything that you wanted to plug?
0: Yes. Well, I guess this is a good time to make public the fact that I am going to be having a 10-year anniversary Uh, Broken Boxes exhibition. I've been invited to um, produce the project um, at the Albuquerque Museum in New Mexico, which is really fitting because I live in New Mexico and that's where the project was birthed. And I'm going to be co-curating it with Josie Lopez, who is the head curator there. And it'll feature um, like 30 artists who I've Um, primarily interviewed or worked with in like the past few years um, with a couple of kind of like anchoring artists like you, Amaryllis, who I've worked with on the project throughout its whole time. So uh, I'm very excited about that. It's going to have a really nice, beautiful art book that accompanies it and hopefully it will travel through the nation. So um, that will be opening in you got some time. It's going to be opening in the fall of 2024, um, but I'm really excited. I've started working on the project with the team and it's just going to be uh, like just a really beautiful gift to the world. I hope.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited for that project. I'm so glad that you took the time to mention that and announce it. It's going to be fucking epic. Um yeah. Really, really exciting and incredible. A lot of people don't know this or might not know this about you, but you're also, I will just claim this for you. Um, that you're, <laughs> you're an amazing curator. You're an excellent curator. The way that you're constellating different people and artists and ideas and stories and conversations like that exists, um, in the podcast. And also you've been curating different art shows and, um, things of the like that have just been really, really rich and reflective of your community and the work that you do. And then people may not know this, but you're a really beautiful writer as well. And so I think you're going to be writing an essay or you're going to have a written piece I'll say Mm -hmm. in the publication for this too. Yeah. You can put that out if it's not supposed to be announced, but I just want to say I'm <laughs> very excited about that as well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we're we're really
0: pitching the publication. We're trying to get funding right now, but we're really pitching it to be more of an art book versus like a catalog, so really kind of breaking the box of like what an accompanying publication could look like. And yeah, I I really appreciate you saying those kind of things about the way I um curate ideas together in space and in (laughs) non-space. And yeah, um, yeah, I'm just super excited about that. And I'm just thinking one other thing that I'd like to say is um, this summer I get to go on tour with my friend's music group in Europe. So I'll be in um, all throughout Europe for, yeah, the first two weeks of July Um, And I'll be DJing out there so y'all can expect some new mixes coming out this summer after that tour. So I'm really excited about that.
2: Oh, hell yeah. Perfect timing for the summer barbecues popping off. I'll take you on a journey, though. Make sure to drop some mushrooms at that barbecue. Yeah, yeah. You're like, uh, this isn't (laughs) a a mix for the family reunion. Uh, (laughs) Plan accordingly. (laughs) (laughs) Going on a journey. (laughs) Well, I always wanted to do this, but this is the first time I've gotten to interview anyone on a, a radio format, but I've always wanted to do what Oprah does, which mm-hmm. is a rapid fire, a okay. lightning round. So I'm going to say words and you just say the first response that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Art. Life. Love. Life. God I wanted
0: to say dead but I know that's horrible oh, no. no I have to edit that out
2: oh. <laughs> Okay do God again do God again okay. Will you keep do God again in there <laughs> just as a phrase I'll just keep it. I'll just keep keep it all do God again God. Damn it. Food. Boobs. Land. Back. Universe. Self. Contradiction. Life. Water. Birth. SpongeBob. Squarepants? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the boring one. That's great. Pantalones. <laughs> underwear i just keep going and going for like 20 more minutes okay (laughs) friend you have to like fade it out it's just (laughs) you made me promise not to
0: edit anything Uh, out so
2: i know i know (laughs) because it's like okay just to like okay we're we're pausing on the rapid fire but just to say you know how you're talking about earlier that you would always edit out um your voice, me and ginger were joking that that you were going to do that same thing with this interview so just be like me asking these questions (laughs) (laughs) that would would be like like a a beautiful performance (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) hilarious it would be like a a garfield without garfield have you ever seen that (laughs) it's so fucking funny someone edited out garfield from all the garfield comic strips so it's just john asking all these like Semi-depressing, like existential questions. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> French fries. America. Milkshake. Yard. <laughs> Echolocation. World. Community. Care. Algorithm. <laughs> psychiatrist party take uh, end end
0: like are we done or you want me to end <laughs> <laughs> that's the way you end all the podcasts you do end <laughs> end <laughs> okay um no and- rapid fire and- okay. okay bye
2: <laughs> ginger Dunhill, thank you so much for joining us today on the broken boxes podcast it has been a delight and like just truly thank you for like really really every, for everything that you share Um, and everything that you gave to this conversation. I am so grateful.
0: Well, thank you, Amaryllis. I just wanted to say, give you a shout out that you did an incredible job interviewing. Like you are a natural. And I think that you should definitely like keep this skill, um, keep sharpening it because you are really good at it. And I, I felt Uh so comfortable and held and you asked great questions and you you just nailed it so that means so much to me because you're a seasoned it seems like it but I edit most of my question out I ramble <laughs> for like five minutes after I asked the question and then I just edit <laughs> that out so it sounds like I really have my shit together
2: <laughs> well Here behind it... the
0: curtains
2: right 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 lifting the veil (laughs) but no you did a knockout job happy nine year anniversary (laughs) thank
0: you for being on the whole journey with me you were Uh there
2: from from day one such a blessing in my life
4: i had a world of my Everything would be nonsense. 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 The wounds came from the same source as her power. The wounds came from the same nonsense. Her power. Her wound came her from the same source as her power. Her wounds, <laughs> came from the same source as her power. Everything was nonsense. Everything was nonsense.
2: Swervy, cruising really fast through the traffic, super fast, zoom, yeah, watch them panic, I need the bread, I need the bannock, stacking cheese to the moon, Wallace and Gromit, yeah, they really thought we lost, forgot that we helped them walk, couldn't really kill us, couldn't subdue us, gonna need bigger Pucks.
4: Survival, Love, Hatred, Hidden Meanings, Regret, Peace, Resiliency, Progress, Secrets, Gentrification, Lessons, Escape, Water, Salt, Dirt, The Sacred, The Corrupt, The Shame, vulnerability, magic, compassion, and confusion.
0: who know and love me, and with this love is strength, I will not be eaten alive
4: any longer. I am no one, but I exist. I am broken, and I am afraid. I dream to feel the stories, songs, and dances that I was raised in, that call my heart to peace, but I am afraid to be them. I feel it I want to break down the walls and get to it I'm neurotic It's too chaotic I question all the
3: same But I still want to fuck with it (laughs) Systematic